Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Terry Daniel. Terry is an ordained interfaith minister, a clinical chaplain, and intuitive counselor who helps people who are dying or in grief reach what she calls a more spiritually spacious understanding of death and beyond. Her first book was A Swan in Heaven, Conversations Between Two Worlds, extraordinary conversations that she had with her son Danny after his death in 2006 at the age of 16. She also wrote Embracing Death, A New Look at Grief, Gratitude, and God, which offers a unique metaphysical perspective via her channeled teachings on birth, death, and the afterlife. In 2010, Terry founded the Afterlife Education Foundation, and she runs its annual conference, which will be held here in Portland this year. The conference always features some of the world's leading researchers, counselors, and educators in the metaphysics of death, dying, and bereavement. So, Terry Daniel, I'm so pleased to welcome you. Hi, Miriam. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, Terry, I can't imagine anything more devastating than for a mother to watch her child die. Did you have any spiritual practice at this time that prepared you for this ordeal? Actually, I did, which really sets me apart from most people who experience this. I had always been metaphysically minded. I was intuitive. I come from my mother and grandmother were both kind of psychic. So I've been aware that it's a multi-dimensional universe and that we are not just these bodies since I was 12. So uh, when my son was diagnosed, I kind of looked at it the way the way Ram Dass explains it, which is he said, you know, when you're faced with a tragedy, you say, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what this means. How can I work with this? And I was really geared toward that. So, of course, it was tragic and horrible that my son had this disease and was going to die in five to ten years. And after I felt the pain of it, I went to a spiritual sort of way of processing it, which is, okay, what does this mean? Why did this happen to us? How do I work with this for our journey? So I, I did have that, a lot of spiritual preparation. And all through his illness, um, I had a lot of spiritual guidance. I had a channeler that I worked with. I did a lot of meditation with my son and traveled through the dimensions. And that really helps to not be overly attached to the physical dimension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When your son began to communicate with you uh, intuitively or psychically, what did you think was happening? I'm sorry. Could you say that one more time, Miriam? I, I lost part of what you said. Well, you started to communicate with your son. Ah. Uh, you know, non-verbally. Right. So um, did you just accept this as a matter of course, or did you think maybe your your desire to speak with him was um, fueling your imagination? You know, I never questioned it that way at all, and it actually started before he died because with his illness, he lost the ability to speak in the last couple of years. And right around the time when he was losing the ability to speak, my intuitive abilities were getting stronger. And at that time, I was working in a metaphysical bookstore doing tarot readings. And 
there was a woman there who was a channeler who took me under her wing and became my mentor. And she said to me, she watched me do a reading once, and she said, you're channeling while you do these readings. And I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm not a channeler. And she said, yeah, you are. And she sort of taught me how to trust the imagery and the words and the thoughts and the impressions that I was getting doing these readings. And I did a lot of work with her to open that conduit, and I realized, oh, my goodness, I am channeling. And I also realized that what I was doing was nothing special. We're all here on Earth with the ability to do that. But as we grow up from, from babyhood and adapt to living in these dense physical bodies, that conduit narrows down and closes down, and we, we forget that we have that ability. So it's really just a matter of re opening it and remembering our connection to source. So when my son stopped talking, which was gradual, I started hearing more telepathically, which was also gradual. So it was a relative thing that was happening um, over time. And during the last year or so of his life, I did guided meditations with him and, you know, walked him through a lot of interesting visual journeys. So we were journeying together before he left his body. So by the time he was out of his body, we knew how to do that. Wow. I mean, just just imagine um, what a gift that would be to so many people who are losing their loved ones. I mean, it yes. boggles the mind. Exactly, and that's why I became a hospice chaplain, <laughs> so that I could offer that gift. Huh? You know, and that's what we try to do. Well, in hospice chaplaincy, you can't always do that. That's a whole other conversation. But um, as a transition guide or a death midwife, sorry about that, um, this is what one does. Mm -hmm. You work with a family, you work with a dying person, and you... you Train them on how to do interdimensional journeying if you have the opportunity. In hospice, we don't often have the opportunity to do that. There's a lot of politics and issues, you know, that kind of get in the way. But when you do have a family who's willing to do that, it's magic. I'll bet. I've never heard the term death midwife. Ah. How fascinating. It's a wonderful term, and it's coming more popularly into the culture. I don't know who originated it, but there's a book called Dead, uh, Dead, Death Midwifery by Joellen St. Pierre, which came out probably six, seven, eight years ago, which is a fantastic book, and it's all about how to do death midwifery. This is nothing new. This is really ancient, certainly um, in, in ancient times, people did this. In Buddhism, this is what the Tibetan Book of the Dead is all about, where you actually sit with the body after it dies and guide the soul through the many levels that it visits on its way back to the light. Um, you do that in spiritual practice every day with, in your life before somebody dies. The shamans do it. The Buddhists do it. The Egyptians did it. It's, you know... We humans have known about this for a long time. Mm -hmm. well, you know, they say that um, you are never given, uh, by way of tragedy, more than you can bear. Um, do you feel that this was kind of a, a, a pre-agreement between you and your son to prepare you for the work that you now do? Without question. 
that is 100% the reason why it happened. And in fact, I was just thinking about this the other day, looking back at my life, and in my life, in my history, I haven't had a lot of success with a lot of things. You know, for example, I've owned four houses in my life, and I've lost every one of them. You know, I've had three crappy marriages. I've never been able to make any money. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. Nothing ever really worked. I just realized the other day that what I'm doing now, going to school to get a degree in theology, running the afterlife conference, writing these books, works. Mm. It's completely aligned with my soul. And it's not that it makes me any money, because it doesn't, you know, but that's not why I'm doing it. But I feel like I'm finally at 61 years old doing what I came here to do. And I know that my son is helping me. And if he hadn't died, there would be no afterlife conference. Mm-hmm. And my books would not be here. And I wouldn't be able to provide this help to all these people. So it was definitely agreement. I, I thank my son every day. And it was not something he could do from Earth. He had to do it from another dimension to guide me, because that's where the wisdom comes from. Mostly comes from him. I don't take a lot of credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the things that he might have communicated to you about the afterlife that you found most surprising? Well, um, I could actually... Well, surprising... I don't know about surprising so much as just incredibly beautifully profound. Like one thing that he told me very soon after he died, and I use this in my hospice work all the time, is that, uh, well, can I read it? It's just a couple of uh, sentences. Um, Hold on here. He says, this is in a channeled message from him. As my body was dying and my breaths were fading and infrequent. There was a mirror image of each breath in heaven, breathing in new life in much the same way a baby takes its first breath outside the womb. With each weakening, struggling breath on earth, a mirror image breath occurs on the other side, getting stronger as each earth breath gets weaker, until the final breath closes one door and opens the other. What is breath on earth becomes light in heaven. Wow. So if you've ever been with a dying person, you actually can see this happening. And when I started working with hospice and with the dying, I learned very quickly that when I'm sitting with them, if I can synchronize my breathing with them, and you can't always, because when people are dying, they sometimes do very strange things with their breathing. Um, If I can synchronize with their breathing and their soul gives permission, I can go with them where they're going. I can accompany them a little bit on their journey. So that was one thing he taught me that I can now put into practical application, Mm. among other things. Can you describe one or two of these experiences? Oh, my favorite one. I will never forget. There was a woman and she was very close to dying. And You know, at this point, they're really not in their bodies at all. They're in and out, but mostly out. And I was sitting with her, meditating with her, breathing with her. She was lying on her side, and all of a sudden her eyes opened, and she looked at me, which is not unusual. 
but I telepathically heard her say, it's just like swimming. And then she closed her eyes. So, um, you know, the, the swimming analogy is really interesting because if you think about breathing and swimming, and you can't really breathe underwater, but when you're breathing on Earth and learning to breathe light instead of air, if you will, is kind of like learning to breathe water instead of air. It's like becoming another form. So it was an amazing, amazing message from her. She was swimming. She was transferring her breath from air to light using water and swimming as an analogy. Hmm. Yeah, that kind of stuff happens all the time. It's, it's quite remarkable. And it's also why some religious traditions, when somebody dies, they don't want the body to be alone in this particularly in Jewish tradition, where someone is supposed to actually sit with the body for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. um, I, there may be some superstitions around that, like to make sure that robbers don't come and steal it, or that evil things don't come and get the soul. But I think what it really means is to help that soul transition out of relationships from the physical world into relationships with the non-physical world. Because they stay very close to the body in the beginning. Uh huh. Well, in in uh, old England, they used to bury corpses with a string around their toes, attached to a bell. Yes. Say <laughs> yes. I know about that. It's wonderful. Saved by the bell. Exactly. Because people didn't have the medical knowledge to know when somebody was really dead, so they very often buried people while they were still alive. Yeah, yeah. My goodness. So tell us a bit about this afterlife conference. Yes. Um, well, this is great because it ties into to what I want to say about grief as well. So early on, after my son died and I began writing books and teaching, I figured, I assumed my audience would be other parents who'd lost children. So I connected with a group called the Compassionate Friends, which is an international organization for bereaved parents. They have conferences all the time. They get 1,500 people. It's huge. And I quickly learned that they don't like their presenters to talk about after-death communication or mediumship or near-death experience or out-of-body experience. The organizers, the national leadership of that group is adamantly against this. And I had some very um, uncomfortable run-ins with them when I tried to come and speak at their conference. And they sent me not very friendly emails saying, we absolutely do not allow this kind of material at our conference. It's upsetting for the newly bereaved because they feel left out because some people get messages from their kids and other people don't. I mean, their, their rationale was ridiculous because even if it's upsetting to some people, are we going to disregard the people that it helps? We're going to just throw them out. We don't care about them. You know, if 30% of the people don't like it, yeah. what do we ignore the other 70%? We don't give them what they need. Plus, at those conferences, they had five sessions going on concurrently. So no one has to come hear about after-death communication. If they don't want to, they can go to another session about something else. So I realized that was a dead end. And so I spoke to other people in the field who had also been rejected by this group. And I realized in 2010, I had to start my own conference. 
where we could reach bereaved people and others with this message that your loved one does not die, they just change form, and they're still communicating with you, and there are processes and practices and things that you can do to become intuitive enough to not only receive those communications, but to get divine guidance in many forms, including talking to guides and angels and all the stuff that's out there. So I started this conference for that purpose, and I brought in people um, who were leaders in the field at the time, like Bill Guggenheim, um, I can't think of any names offhand from back then. Carla Blowy, Mitch Carmody, these were people who were doing a lot of work with grief. Bill Guggenheim wrote an amazing book called Hello from Heaven. And so we started this conference together. Mm -hmm. And now we're in our fourth year, and it's moving away from the grief thing gradually because I don't want it to become a grief conference. And because the grief, the bereaved people, the ones who come to our conference are at a different place in their grief process. And I want to give that to them. And the people who have not come to that place yet, there are other conferences that give them what they need. And we focus now on a lot of experiential out-of-body teaching. We now have shamans who teach us how to work with the dying and actually help the soul separate from the body. We have scientific researchers. We've had Eben Alexander now two years in a row. This will be Raymond Moody's third year with us. And we have mediums. We've got five mediums this year, really well-known ones, uh, Suzanne Northrup and Hollister Rand and some others. And next year we have John Holland. So the mediums, you know, do gallery-style readings for the audience and bring in their loved ones, which is just the highlight of the conference for almost everybody. And it's hugely hugely nourishing for people. Mm. Yes. I, very, very healing and educating. Do you feel that there has been kind of a seismic shift in uh, openness to the notion of the afterlife? Absolutely. Over what period of time have you seen it? Well, since I've been in, in the afterlife business, which is, <laughs> which is about eight years now, um, that's when I've seen it. So I can't really say what happened before that because I didn't see it. Mm -hmm. But um, what I've seen is the more we get mainstream teacher, teachers like Eben Alexander and Raymond Moody, um, who are MDs, who have come over to this realization from having been skeptics, the more mainstream it becomes. The Internet had a lot to do with it. So, of course, now that we have an Internet, information is shared you know, on such a grand scale that we can read about people's near-death experiences you know, and look up the scientific research in one second, where 20 years ago... We didn't even know about such stuff. And if we did, we had to go to the library and look for a book, and there weren't many books. And um, so now there's just, it's really the information revolution that has made this happen. Is mass media, Facebook, you know, all this stuff that we have. And this is what people are talking about. Plus, we have media leaders like Oprah and um, Dr. Oz and Anderson Cooper who are starting to 
put this stuff on their shows. So the word is getting out to the mainstream. And once it does, people are saying, oh, this makes a whole lot more sense than what I learned in Sunday school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and people are, are coming over to our, to our side, so to speak, in droves. Since you hear so many different uh, speakers on the subject, uh, do you find that there is pretty much consensus or agreement on the nature of the afterlife, or is it kind of like a mosaic that you're putting together? That is one of my favorite questions, and thank you for asking. The answer is it is remarkably consistent. And um, there's, there's two sides to this answer. The channeled material that we have, if we look at everything, you know, beginning with The Course in Miracles, the Seth books, uh, Conversations with God, I'm just trying to pull these out of my head, um, uh, Glenda Green's Jesus Speaks, my books, um, blah, 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 all the channeled books are, I would say, 99.9% consistent in what they describe about what we are, why we came here, how we came here, the Akashic record, what we're here to do, what happens when we die, where do we go when we meditate. It's so consistent, it's just startling. And I, I would love to see someone do a scientific study on that consistency. So that's the channeled material. Um, the the other material that's not necessarily channeled, even though I think all of it is, even if people don't realize that's where they're getting it from, is still remarkably consistent. The only variation that I've seen, and it's really not a variation, is there are people who write and talk about going to hell in their near-death experience. And unfortunately, when that when those stories get into the hands of the disclaimers and the wrong people, they go, aha, see, it is true. God does punish you and you do go to hell. And what they don't realize is when we have a near-death experience, we don't stay dead. We just kind of go through the door and hang out there for a little while, and then we come back. So all we're experiencing is what's immediately on the other side of that door. We're not experiencing the whole later experience of the other side. So very often people will have a scary experience in that stage because when what we know from the channeled and consistent material is that when you first cross over, you have what is commonly called a life review, and you experience all of the emotions of yourself and other people close to you. You sort of just go through your life and look at what did I do in this incarnation? Did I get my work done? Did I do what I came in to do? Did I clean up my karma, you know, pieces of karma? You look at all your stuff. And for some people, it's very traumatic. And so that is where the idea of hell actually comes from. Well, actually, Evan Alexander and, and a number of other people um, whom I've, I've interviewed or read um, mentions going through what he calls like a, a, a sea of mud where mm-hmm. everything is dark and, and there are like uh, roots or, or, or hands reaching out. And it is only when they acknowledge the possibility of getting out of there that they're lifted out into the light. So, uh, you know, part of it, 
possibly part of the benefit of the work that you do is preparing people for an understanding that they are going to the light and they can ask for it. Yes. And they can, it will be offered. I mean, they don't even have to ask. It's put right there in front of them. And one of the things the Tibetan Book of the Dead does, and it's wonderful to read if you ever have a chance to read it, it says, okay, soul, now you're traveling through this and you're seeing this and that, and over here is a bright white light. If you look to your left, there's a yellow light. Go to the white light. So the Tibetan Book of the Dead is guiding you. They say it's 49 days of bardo, and it's guiding you which ones to go to. But because we bring our attachments and our egos and our stuff with us when we immediately cross over, we're attracted to that yellow light over there on the left or whatever we're seeing over there. So we're going to, for various reasons, we're going to go over there. But we're constantly being guided to higher and higher levels. Now, where we choose to go depends on our soul's blueprint and plan for growth. So what Eben was describing, which is what blew my mind about his book, because in shamanism, there's also a practice where you go in and you guide souls through, even if they've been dead for years and years. And there are these levels called the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, the stone kingdom. And he was describing something like the plant world. And they are kind of like the dark places where we have to walk through that muck. That's the muck of our ego attachments. It's, you know, it's not really muck. It's just that's what it looks like Mm -hmm. when you are translating it into the language of another dimension. It looks like muck, because it is. It's cosmic muck (laughs) within our consciousness. And so, yeah, there's always somebody there, your ancestors, your loved ones, your guides, angels, whoever, that are saying, come on, come with me. Or, no, they don't, you know, they say that, but they say, well, no, I will be with you while you walk through this muck, because there's some stuff you need to look at there, but then you'll be done, and we'll go over here. But if you're not going to stay dead, you don't get to go over over here. (laughs) you got to come back. So all you see is the muck for some people. Or you don't get to you don't get to stay even if you go get out of the muck to the light as as Evan right. did. Yeah, I mean Evan got to go a little farther than the muck. You know he got to go and you know toward, closer toward the light before he came back. But a lot of people don't get any farther than the muck, and they come back and they say, "Oh my God, I went to hell. There's hell. Hell is real." What con- what is your concept of a creator or God? Um, well, the first thing I say to that is the easiest way to understand God is to change the pronoun from him to it. And if you start referring to God as it, it shifts everything. It created the universe. It is love. It forgives. You know, all the, all the cliches and that's the first thing. It's not, it's not a humanoid. It's, a, it's an it. It's an energetic force of creation. That's really all you need to know. It's really the Big Bang, in a sense. Um, the, the idea of God as a man on a throne in the sky comes from nowhere. Actually, I just learned in a, a theology class the other day where that idea comes from. It was one of the visions of an Old Testament proce- uh, prophet named Ezekiel who had this vision 
of thrones and wheels and chariots and this man sitting on a throne. That is the first and only place in the Bible where that image is seen. Actually, it's repeated in Revelation, but they stole it from Ezekiel. So the problem with understanding God is we have all this imagery, and it scares people, it inhibits people, it's an infantile way of looking at the cosmic, energetic force of all creation. And the whole idea of God punishes you, God is mad at you, it all comes from the Old Testament. And it's all hooey. I go on record saying it's all hooey. Well, uh, you know, I'm wondering whether rather than being hooey, it was simply um, Ezekiel's interaction with alien beings because there is a certain um, school of thought that suggests that uh, Ezekiel's chariots of fire were actually spacecraft. And his... um, uh, visions of the, a, a god-like being were actually um, aliens who had uh, what to him would have been supernatural powers. Makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and that, that brings me to another answer to your question about how we were created. We right now have the technology to send a spaceship up to the moon and leave a Petri dish full of something up there right? Mm -hmm. So who's to say that someone didn't put us here billions of years ago in exactly (laughs) the same way? I mean, we can do that today. Yeah. So some, you know, alien life form at some place in the universe might have come to earth and done the same thing with some little organism that turned into us. And so if that's true, all the different theories of creation are actually all true. So God created us. That, that could be a way of explaining that. We evolved from amoebas. That it would also be true. And there is a mother-father creator of some sort in the heavens, which would also be true. So all of those creation myths would fit under this little image of some civilization or some being or who knows what put us here and grew us out of a cell or something. So that could be these aliens, and that could be what Ezekiel saw. The connection that we need to make is somehow where, between the soul that gives us life and the creative source, and, you know, how all of these different creation myths and shamanic um, approaches and religious approaches, at what level do they connect into a coherent whole? I mean, aliens are people too, precisely. (laughs) Yes, they are, and they're spirits too. Mm -hmm. And they probably have souls too, I mean, of course. Well, that's a really, that's a great question, and that's the whole reason I decided to go back to school and study theology, is because I was asking that exact question. Somewhere at the core, they connect, and that's where the truth is found. And I have, I feel like I have found that, you know, and it's not that hard to find. It's not a big mystery. If you start studying all the religions and the cultures, you realize very quickly that they're all saying the same thing, 
colored by their various cultural references, the time in history when they lived, what was happening to them politically at the time, many, many factors that contributed to the particular specifics of the myths they created. But bottom line is they're all talking about the same thing. Mm. We came here as spirit. We're here doing something. They don't all agree on that. <laughs> but, you know, that based, the bottom line is we're not just these bodies. There's more than this body and this earth. That would be the common core. All the rest is just narrative and, and superstition and dogma and doctrine and all that stuff. And it's interesting, you know, when you do a historical critical study of religion, it really is amazing to learn how these stories were created as a reflection of what people were living in. Like if we were writing a creation myth today based on our world, you know, the computer would be God. You know, and they send us these messages on these little typing pads, on these screens that you look at. I mean, that's what we would write if we were writing about what the universe is, you know, if we were, didn't already know what we know. So, for instance, the Old Testament, the idea of the punishing angry God, that stuff was all written down. It was oral before this, but it was written down and published at the time that the Jews were in exile. And they were expressing their reality that they lived in, which is they had no roots, they had no temple, and they lived with these mean, horrible oppressors. So that was the God they created. Mm -hmm. That was what they knew. So, you know, if you asked a, a five-year-old that never had any religious indoctrination, what do you think God is? He'd probably, you know, name it after a cartoon character or... His, something else that is in his reference. We did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in uh, many indigenous societies, um, it's the sun, it's the, the, uh, the nature elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's what they knew. Yeah. And, what, and so if you live on the land and you live by the crops, then God is the thing that makes the crops grow. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we get to the point where God punishes up us? You know, okay, our crops didn't grow. We must have done something wrong. That question, we must have just done something wrong, is more prominent in Judeo-Christian thinking than anywhere else. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, I mean, it, it appears in other cultures and other history, but it's not prominent like it is here. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's a fascinating question. The bottom line is everybody's talking about the same thing. But if you say that to a fundamentalist, they will not see that. <laughs> <laughs> They'll say, oh, no, all that other stuff, those are false gods. Mm -hmm. This, what I'm telling you, is the only way that it really is. They're not talking about the same thing. Yeah. Well, now, you've got a new book coming out. Tell us about it. So my new book is called Turning the Corner on Grief Street. But before we move to that, I want to give the website of the conference, which is afterlifeconference.com. It's very simple. And turning the corner on Grief Street is, with all of this that we're talking about, you know, a big part of the audience for the conference are people who are grieving and want to understand not only how can I cope with my grief, but where is my loved one and why did this happen? And so this book... Is, is very different than most books on grief because 
it's all a new way to look at it, which is these events are not random. If your child um, was killed in a drive-by shooting, this is not a punishment from God, and this is not a random and meaningless event. It's all interconnected with every other event in the universe. And, and this is how we find meaning. You know, in, in traditional grief counseling, one of the first things that you learn is help the person find meaning in the event. The first thing you want to know is why. And so just looking at my story with my son, you know, my son died. His death was part of a movement for many, many thousands of people to move forward who, because of his death and my teachings that resulted as, from that, thousands of people have learned something new. And that little piece of something new moved them forward in some small way. And the whole cosmic connectedness of all of this is that everything that happens moves us forward in some way. And that's pretty much what the book is about. And I use the analogy of a kaleidoscope, which is everything in the universe, every thought, every being, every rock and plant is like a piece in the kaleidoscope. And when the kaleidoscope turns, all the pieces rearrange, they break apart and they rearrange in another way. They move separately but they're not separate. They're contained in a circle of containment. And that circle image is also very ancient. You know, it's the circle of life, the wheel of life in Buddhism, you know, the sacred hoop in Native American. You see it everywhere. And so every turn of the kaleidoscope, so like a plane crash, click, the kaleidoscope turns. An earthquake, click, the kaleidoscope turns. A butterfly lands on a flower, click, the kaleidoscope turns. Every single thing turns the kaleidoscope. And everything shifts in response to it. So with that view, the death of your loved one is really just one of, you know, a hundred billion, trillion, gazillion clicks of the kaleidoscope. That happens every moment of every second. And we all move forward or move somewhere. This notion of the interconnectedness of all things is so fundamental, not just to death and dying, but to our trajectory through the world. Yes. Uh, we, we forget to look at the implications of our actions, and we forget to take responsibility for them. But that's another subject. But um, does... Your work um, help people get this sense of interconnectedness. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point, you know. And, uh, and what what um, what way of presenting it have you found um, most effective in having the penny drop? You know, and people saying, "Aha, I get it." Well. The conference has really been effective that way. And, you know, people come back year after year to our conference, and a lot of them are newly bereaved. I mean, we have young, uh, young widows in their 20s. You know, we have people whose children have died. We have people who've had three of their children die. People with, you know, sons killed in the war. I mean, anything, suicides, you cannot imagine the horrible stuff that we hear. You know, parents who've come home after work and opened the garage door and found their kid hanging in the garage. Yeah. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that story from people. Horrible stuff. And 
when they come to our conference, they find some peace. And it's different for everybody. But I think the biggest thing that helps them see the interconnectedness is to focus on the signs that they receive from their loved ones and readings with mediums. That's a really big, important piece. So if you're that parent who found your child hanging, you know, you and I cannot even begin to understand what that feels like, the guilt, everything. And if you can have a evidential reading with a medium and bring in that kid who's saying, you know, I'm sorry for the pain I caused. It probably wasn't the best solution. But now that I'm here, I'm learning so much. And, you know, I, I can help you. I'm still here. I'm safe. I'm not being punished. I'm not burning in hell. I mean, you can't, you can't even put a measure on how helpful that is to people. Mm -hmm. You know, but it has to be a good evidential reading where the medium will say something that there's no way in hell they could guess at or, you know, or know. Sure, sure. And we have, we have mediums that are that good. I mean, Suzanne Northrup, I've seen her do things where she'll be in a room full of people and she'll say, I see two horses galloping at the back of the room, a black one and a white one. Do these horses belong to anybody? And sure enough, someone will stand up and say, my two horses, a black one and a white one, died in a barn fire last year. Mm. That's how good some mediums are. How can you deny that? You know? So that is a big piece in seeing the interconnectedness. And, um, yeah, the continuity. The continuity. And, you know, um, meditations and out-of-body processes are another way that people really experience it. You know, with the, some guided journeying that we do, uh, people, their hearts just burst open, you know, and they're just sobbing with joy because they feel the divine, and they may not have ever felt that before. And it changes you. Hmm. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> you know, I mean, meditation is so powerful. Anybody can do it. And it does, it changes you, you know, just, that's the whole point. That's why meditation is important, because you do tap in to feeling that, and it feels like love. And that's what people say about their near-death experiences, too. It felt like love. I was saturated in love and completely safe mm. in the arms of God, or whatever language they want to use. It's that feeling. I mean, I've had that feeling many, many times in meditation. And even in grief, coming back to my book, in deep, deep grief, in a weird way, you feel that too. Because you're open. And most of the time we're not. We walk around closed. And grief and sadness and trauma blows your heart open and you feel, feel, feel so deeply and it feels terrible. But there's a funny little edge to it that feels like you're close to God. It feels like you're close to spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so many people who um, have what, you know, dark nights of the soul mm -hmm. um, have profound awakenings. When they come through it, they're changed and they have a, a, an openness to, uh, in many cases, to other dimensions and, and they, they feel. Um, whether it's angels or, or God or some benign um, energy helping them through it. 
Exactly. And I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the dark night of the soul because there's a chapter in my new book called that. <laughs> it's, called, it's called the dark night of the soul. And that's exactly what it's for. And uh, there's an interesting point about that is that a dark night of the soul isn't just a trauma. Grief itself is not a dark night of the soul, even though it may feel that way. But a true dark night has to result in transformation mm -hmm. or it's not the real deal. And in that dark night, everything you know to be true goes out the window. That's what happened to John of the Cross when he wrote about the dark night of the soul, which is where it came from. Everything he thought to be true is just gone. And you have to rebuild it with something new. And you emerge different. So if you're not willing to let everything you know go out the window, and that's what my book Grief Street is about. So I have a lot of people that I encounter who are still very angry because their teenage daughter was killed by a drunk driver mm -hmm. 10 years ago. And they're still angry. And they're still talking about prosecuting the perpetrator. And they still identify, they go to these grief con conferences, and instead of their name on the badge, they write on the badge, Melissa's mother. Oh, dear. Yeah. They don't, they didn't get a new identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a woman 27 years ago had a stillborn baby and still goes to these conferences and calls herself, you know, Melissa's mother. Mm -hmm. And that's because they did not have a dark night of the soul. They did not relinquish what they believed. So some of these beliefs, for example, a lot of people will say to me, well, I believed if I was a good person and worshipped God that nothing bad would ever happen to me. And it's like, Really? Where did you get an idea like that? And so, and so, but people do believe that. I go to church, I'm good, I'm honest, you know, I'm supposed to be protected. And, and that idea comes from nowhere. That's just not even in any theology. But Sunday school and other propaganda teaches us this. So when they have the trauma, that belief is shattered. And that's great. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. But for some people, they don't allow that belief to be shattered. So they cling to it for years and years. And they're angry at God. And I'll give you a great thing. This is a perfect thing to wrap up with. Um, do you know, remember the book Heaven is for Real by the little kid who had a near-death experience? And yep. mm -hmm. So uh, they just made a movie of that. And the producer of the movie called me and called several other people. He called Raymond Moody and a few others and want us to endorse his movie. So he sent us all a link and I watched the movie last week and I loved it. And I was so surprised that I would because I know that the book was very religious and evangelical, but the producers, they were very careful to remove that from the movie. And in the movie, the father, who is a very traditional conservative preacher, who you know, has a dark night of the soul in a way because he doesn't believe what the kid is telling him and neither do the people in his church. And so he has to go through this process with himself where he says, well, wait a minute, I've been preaching this and believing this my whole life and here somebody, a total innocent child comes and is trying to tell me that it's true and I don't believe him. Mm -hmm. So what is it I really believe in? That is a dark night of the soul. And he allowed himself to, to shift and move. So uh, that's why I like that movie. Fascinating. Okay, Terry, recap for us the websites, please. Afterlifeconference.com is the conference. 
And uh, for my new book, Turning the Corner on Grief Street, it's very simple, griefstreet.com. Great. Well, we've been speaking with Terry Daniel, author of many books, uh, Swan in Heaven, Turning the Corner on Grief Street, and organizer of the Afterlife Awareness Conference. Terry, thank you so much for being with us. Miriam, I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Our guest next week is Catherine Agronovich, Ph.D. We're going to discuss her delightful new book, Tales of My Large, Loud, Spiritual Family. It's a delightful book, and I'm sure it'll be a delightful interview. I would like to invite you to visit our website, ncreview.com, and you'll find on the homepage a link to the new quarterly magazine that we have just launched for the Speakers Bureau for Luminary Voices. It has some great articles. It's a free magazine. And starting next quarter, we're going to include a supplement from New Consciousness Review with the latest reviews. So check out Luminary Voices magazine. Well, that's our show for today, and we're going to close with our track of the week called Angel by Celia. But I can 
That was Angel from the album Breathe by singer-songwriter and comedian Celia. She has been described as a cross between an earthy Enya, Joan Baez, and Tina Fey, and has the kind of silky smooth voice often associated with classic Celtic singers. Hailing from Wisconsin, she dishes up the most delicious concoction of the silly and the sacred, delighting audiences across the nation. You can find out more on her website, celiaonline.com. If you'd like to send us feedback on the show, or perhaps even suggest guests for future shows, you can email me at miriam at ncreview.com, or you can connect through our Facebook page, facebook.com slash ncreview. The title on the page is Media for Enlightened Living, which was our tagline for the website, and we got stuck with it. So anyway, it's all the same family, New Consciousness Review. Speaking of which, I am Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review, and I want to thank you very much for listening. I hope you'll join us next week, and until then, be well and be happy. Goodbye. Thank you.